Thank you, Robin, and thank you for your birthday wishes. You know, after you've had about 40 of them, like I have, ish. <laughs> yeah, if I don't get that right, y'all ain't going to believe what else I have to say today, are you? But you know you do, you just kind of, I don't know, say, oh well. <laughs> Here's another one, because I tell you, uh, am I right? The older you get, the more quickly they come? What is it about that, Miss Maravine? I don't know. I mean, I just had one last week. 87, my goodness. You know, Mr. Monk? <laughs> You're an expert in that, huh? Yeah. I get it. Yes, sir. That's right. Hey, the alternative is, uh, <laughs> is not too pleasant. This is true. All right, guys. Hebrews chapter number 2 is where we are. I'm going to read for us today the first uh, four verses in Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll make a few brief comments about it and we'll be on our way. Y'all don't believe that either, do you? All right. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2 verse... Number one, this inspired writer says this, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty... How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard it, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will." Well, the epistle to the Hebrews is unique in a number of ways. Uh, probably the most pronounced is it is the only book to meet the criteria of being included in the New Testament so many years ago, literally thousands of years ago, without a pretty high degree of certainty of authorship. Hebrews is known in scholarly circles as the orphan epistle simply because, like the rest of the New Testament, we do not have that certainty of authorship. Now, there are only two guys who are really in the mix here to receive credit from a human perspective. One of them is the Apostle Paul, and the other is Apollos. You know, one of the things I had the privilege of doing in my academic career was walking with some guys who were at a pretty high level in what's known as textual criticism. Now that's not bad. There are some textual critics that approach the Bible, such as Genesis 1 through 11, with a motivation of proving why it cannot be historically correct. Those are not the critics we associate with. We associate with that brand of scholarly textual criticism, which comes to the text with an assumption that this is the Word of God inspired by the Spirit of God and meant for the people of God in its entirety. And those guys can take a text and look at it and 
by analyzing the language, the vocabulary, the style, and, and the form, and the structure, and all of those things, come to some pretty good conclusions about authorship by comparing it with other letters uh, about which we know who the author happens to be. So I happen to think, as I said last week, that I'm going to throw my lot in with Apollos as being the author of this, and I'll point out several reasons as we go through this book. I'll give you some tidbits for no extra charge as to why I think the text itself mitigates against Pauline authorship. So let's look at this thing as we come to 2, 1 through 4 today and, and um, notice a couple of things right off the bat. Uh, this author has a habit or a pattern of giving us exposition and then he'll move right over into application. So uh, chapter 1 is all about Christology and boy it's pretty high Christology. He tells us why Christ is superior to all the Old Testament prophets and then the last part of that from 5 all the way through the end of the chapter is why Christ is superior to angels. Now he stops right after that in chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 and he gives us the practical application. What should we do in light of this doctrine, this teaching, this exposition of Old Testament Scripture? And you see that within itself is not very Pauline, is it? Because here's what Paul does in every other one of his epistles. He'll cut them right down the middle. He'll give us doctrine. If the book has six chapters, he'll give us three first chapters of doctrine. And then he makes all of the application in the last three. But this guy is more of an orator, more of a, a preacher. He'll give you the teaching. He'll give you the biblical foundation. And then he turns right around and hits you with the one-two punch of the application. So more of a preacher and orator than it is of a theologian like the Apostle Paul. So uh, chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 is the practical outworking, the application of chapter 1. But while I'm there, let me just say that he really organizes this book around five passages that are very critical to our understanding. And they are known as the five warning passages. Because that's what he's doing here. He's given a warning to us about the dangers of not paying close attention to what we hear lest we drift. So we'll look at four more warning passages as we come to them sequentially throughout the course of this book. And basically what he says here is he gives us again some of this Alexandrian logic. Remember we talked about Apollos being schooled. He was a smart cookie. And he was schooled down in Alexandria in Egypt. And we know historically, Caleb, that Alexandria had a particular style of philosophical argumentation. And whoever this guy is, he's fallen right in line with Alexandrian logic. And here's his first argument. It moves from the lesser to the greater. So basically what he's saying to us, if this and this is lesser, then how much more this since this is greater? And notice how he does this. Let me, let me point it out to you before we ever get into this text. Look what he says in uh, verse number 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Do you see that? The word spoken through angels. It was a pretty well accepted idea in the primitive church and prior to the primitive church in Old Testament times 
that the Old Testament was mediated to Moses and to authors through angels. So that is really just an idiomatic expression for the Old Testament scriptures. Now write this down. You'll see Paul say this explicitly and expressly in Galatians chapter 3 in verse number 19 where he talks about the Old Testament being mediated through angelic uh, um, mediators. So what he's saying here is if the Old Testament and those who lived in that era, if that word seemed unalterable and every transgression received its just recompense, how much more the word that was not mediated through angels but came to us directly from the Lord Himself. So do you see his argumentation? Now let me follow that up with a basic question and here it is. Would you agree with me that with privilege comes responsibility? Huh? I mean that's just a pretty well established fact of life, isn't it? I mean the higher up you get in your place of employment, the more privilege you have, but guess what else? the more responsibility you have. And that is basically the line of argumentation that this inspired writer is taking here. With privilege comes responsibility. Would you also agree with me that just by virtue of the fact that we are living on this side of the cross in full light of all of the New Testament, we have greater privileges than those folk did who lived on the other side of the cross? Would you agree with that? So let me ask you a follow-up question. Why is it that we seem to just brush away all of our transgressions and say, oh, but we're living under grace? And we won't have to answer like those folk did who lived under law in, in the Old Testament. You see what we do? We equivocate. Because on one hand we say, yeah, we're privileged. And with privilege becomes responsibility. But when we are the transgressor, we seem to sweep it away and say, Oh, thank God for His grace. Uh Huh? Uh Now listen, yeah, thank God for His grace. But we just cannot do that and expect to be living in light of the argumentation of the New Testament. By golly, if we have been privileged, then we have also been laden with responsibility that privilege brings. Huh? All right, so let's check, let's check this passage out now that we've got through that lengthy introduction, but I felt like we had to set the stage, and you're with me, right? All right, here we go. I, I really want to wrap our arms around this thing by, by, by looking at this theme, which I think is the heart of the text. How to make it work. A warning to the wise. Because this is the first of five warning passages that this guy gives us in light of some scriptural exposition. He gives a warning. A warning, a warning. Now let me say this. Most people when they read these five warning passages, they immediately impose upon the text and read into it that the author is talking about eternal damnation and hell. And he's not doing that at all. He's simply talking about, he's warning us against the consequences of not living responsibly in light of our privilege. Does that make sense? So notice what he does. Here's basically his warning. He says this, 
He says, let us pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not, underline this word, drift. Drift. See, this is a word that comes from maritime vocabulary. It pictures a ship that is under sail and it's, it's sailing full steam ahead and there are signs all along saying, danger, a rocky shoal, danger, shallow water, and then paying no attention to it at all and plowing ahead. You see, there's going to be consequences to that. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the consequences to us living an irresponsible life. So here's our subject for today. How to make it work. And when I say it, what is it? Well, it's just life. How in the world can we make life work? You ever heard anybody ask a question? Tell me, how's that working for you? Well, let's ask ourselves that question today. How is our faith working for us? Man, when I read what Jesus said, he talked about abundant life. Did you hear that? Abundant life. You know what that means? That means, man, he's pressed more life into us than we can actually contain and is coming over the top and spilling out of us and splashing on people who are close to us. Abundant life. You know, they talk about joy unspeakable. My goodness, joy that so, so saturates us that human vocabulary can't even describe it. You ever been in a situation like that where you just didn't have the words to describe? And you see, that's what I'm talking about. Is my faith having those types, uh, types of results in my life? And if not, why not? Maybe because... I'm not living responsibly in light of the privileges that I've been given. So let's check it out and see what it is that this writer tells us. See what it is he says, how we can make it work. By golly, listen to me. Hear me. I'm an old man now officially, all right? And I'm going to tell you, like the writer of the, uh, the Ecclesiastes says, I was young, but now I'm old. And now I can say some things. Hear me. Life is too short to be miserable. God is too good for us to be depressed and angry and upset and unfulfilled. All of that stuff. But my golly, I just described more believers and I just described myself more than I would like to admit. So what can we do to turn this thing around? to steer this ship of life away from the rocky shoals. What can we do? And that's what this writer is talking to us about. So very simply, let me just say it like this. If we're going to make it work, here's the first thing that he says to us. The gospel must have priority. The gospel, Dr. John's got to have priority in our life. We've been privileged. And our responsibility now is making the gospel the priority of our being, our purpose in life, our reason for living. Now look, I'm not talking about religion because by golly, that'll make you pretty miserable. I'm talking about a relationship, hey, with Christ, Dr. John, raised with Him, seated with Him, all of those things. That, that, that's what the gospel is about. It's about a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice what this writer says. 
For this reason, we must underline that word, must, because here's what it is in the Greek New Testament. It's known as a divine imperative. Here's where it's used. You've heard me talk about it before. It's used like this when Jesus said, you must be born again. That's a divine imperative. I mean, there's no other way. It is impossible except you be born again. You must be born again. Jesus said this. He said, the Son of Man must be crucified and raised again the third day. There was no other way. There was no plan B. And now here he uses that same divine imperative. We must pay closer attention to the gospel. Listen to me. Listen to me. This Christian life isn't going to work if we only give it the leftovers. You following me? Watch me. This Christian life is not going to work for you if you're only a part-time follower of Jesus. Come on now. This Christian life is not going to work if everything else on our day planner takes priority over the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not going to work. Hey, just go ahead and write in your Bible right here, this is why I'm miserable. One of my pastor friends sent me a little picture the other day, and it was a picture of a church, and under it, it was an article, Five Ways to Kill a Church. You know what the first one was? Be part-time in your commitment to her. Whoa! Quickest way to kill one. Life doesn't work if we're part-time followers of Jesus Christ. He says we must. Now check this out. Here, here, here's, what he, here's why he says we must prioritize the gospel. Number one, because he tells us there is no comparison. There's no comparison to the gospel. There's nothing in life that comes close. There's not a close second. So it must have priority. Look what he says. I want you to see this in the text. For this reason, we must... I've done had you underline that word... Now underline this next word. Pay much closer, 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 closer. You see, what is that? That's a word of relative comparison. So we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, that is, to the gospel, than what? Than anything else. There shouldn't be anything rivaling our focus and our attention given to the gospel and prioritizing it than anything else. And here's really what he's talking about. Let me just break it down for you. Heather and I have been married now for a few years. And can I say to you, that woman is the priority in my life. Listen to me, there's not another woman on the planet that even compares. There's not another woman on the planet that comes to a close second. Listen, this ain't, this ain't like the old boy that was having a conversation with his wife and she said, when I die, would you get remarried? He said, well, maybe. She said, well, when I die, would you let her use my golf clubs? And the boy says, no, she's left-handed. <laughs> You see, he already had 
a close second in mind, did he not? <laughs> no, John's not like that. It doesn't work that way. I mean, Heather doesn't have a runner-up. She doesn't have somebody's close. She's my focus. She's my priority. I love that woman with everything I am. My prayer is that God kill me before you take her. Huh? I mean, that's just it. We, we do everything together. Listen to me. We live together. We eat together. We shower together. No, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. I said that because we're on a budget. I got to save water. <laughs> right, Cliff? Huh? <laughs> no, it's, a, it's, just a, it's just a wet wash rag. Yeah. <laughs> I wash her back, she washes mine. <laughs> All right, here we go. Y'all blew it. We were going somewhere. Because y'all's minds, <laughs> y'all blew it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at here. He's saying, just like that, just like there's not a close second. There shouldn't be a close second. And my focus and my prioritizing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, nothing else. Not my job. Not my hobbies. None of that. Gospel priority, number one, not a close second. Hey, number two is still in the starting block, and we almost to the finish line. You know what I'm saying? So here we go. Notice what else he says. If we're going to make this thing work, the gospel must have priority. That means there is no comparison when it comes to my commitment to the gospel as opposed to my commitment to everything else that's secondary in life. So he says we must prioritize the gospel because there's no comparison. And number two, he says there is no hesitation. Now let me show you where I see this. You're going to have this entire verse underlined for us over with. You've got must underlined. You've got closer underlined, much closer, he says. Now underline this word, pay. 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 Pay attention. Anybody ever told you that? Yes. Hey, pay attention. Why do we use that word pay with attention? Why not another one? Give attention. I mean, you can do that. Uh, whatever. The common expression is pay attention. And you know why? Let me tell you why this writer uses that type of terminology. Because to prioritize the gospel is going to cost you something. Pay. And are we willing to pay the price that it takes to prioritize the gospel so that life will work for us? And many times the reason life isn't working, the reason faith isn't working is because, let's just be honest, we're, we're not willing to pay the price of prioritizing the gospel. See, I, I'm a tightwad. Y'all know that? That's why we shower together, save water. <laughs> But there's been a lot of times, Heather, I tell you, I, I'll go to the store. I don't mind. Look, I'll spend everything I got on her. But when it comes to buying something for myself, I just can't do it. And there's a lot of times I'll take something and I'll have this, this 
buyer's paralysis. I'll get up to the checkout store line at Tractor Supply, set it there, and it comes time to make the transaction. And all of a sudden, I look at that thing, and I look at what little bit of money I got in my wallet, and I say, you know what? I'd rather have this money than that thing. I'm hesitant to pay the price. And that's what this guy's telling us. He said, we got to be all in this thing. There can't be any hesitation. we got to say, yes, Lord, no matter what it costs, I'm going to pay it because I'm going to prioritize the gospel. Because if I don't, life and faith is not going to work the way the New Testament says it ought to. So a couple of things that I have included here that will cost us. What is part of the price that we have to pay? Well, I think, obviously, we have to say no to other attractions. You've got to be willing to say no to other attractions. Am I right? I mean, the gospel is not going to be a priority if you're saying yes to everything that comes along. Maybe one of the things that we ought to do in 2024 is we look at what we ought to start. Maybe we ought to start saying no to some things. Because you can't say yes to one thing without saying no to ten other things, right? And here's the way you make that decision, by, by your priorities. Your priorities will establish that for you. No, 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 because this is a priority. I cannot do that, so I've got to say no to that. And Lord have mercy, there's enough attractions out there, isn't there? Huh? I mean, there's a lot of things that can attract you away from prioritizing the gospel. Well, I wish we had a grace group this week. Here's be my question. I wouldn't say, what are some of the things that attract you? Because nobody likes to talk about themselves, right? I mean, we're not going to lay our cards on the table and let you see how wicked and sinful I am. But let's just talk about other folks. What are some things that attract those other sinners? <laughs> you know? <laughs> what are some things that are just an attraction that folk can't say no to? Hey, listen to me. On a beautiful, pretty spring morning, you get up and you're going to church, but you walk out, there's blue sky. There's a bluebird sitting on a magnolia limb singing your favorite song, and you just know the fish are biting. Welcome to the world of paying the price for prioritizing the gospel, right? Hey, how about this? How about... Man, you know how much money I can make today in overtime? How about this? How about, Dane, do you know how much money I can make over the next 10 years working at St. Joe Company as a civil engineer? Those are attractions. But yet God's calling me to Brazil. What's our priority? Mammon or the Lord? See where we're going here? There's a lot of attractions out there, so we've got to say no to some attractions. But get this. If we're going to pay the price, we, all got to, we also have to say no to some distractions. Can I just be honest with you? That's where I live. Because I want to tell you, if the devil can create a distraction over here on the side, he'll be glad to do it. He'll be glad to do that in your life. He'll be glad to wreak havoc over here in one area of your life if he can get you off the priority of the gospel and looking over here at this all the time. You focus on those problems all the time and he's got you. So it comes a point in time where we got to say, no, that's a distraction. That's keeping me from prioritizing the gospel. The temptation here is for that to pull me away. 
and to start having my attention there rather than my attention being where it's supposed to be if life's going to work for me and if my faith is going to work for me. Man, can you see Grace Group all in this? What are some distractions that that guy... I mean, isn't there... I don't know about you, but there's all kind of circus sideshows that go on in my world. Is that right with you too? And man, if you don't have the ability to pay close attention, we'll be like everybody else that's drifting. You know, one of the things that amazes me about being in Brazil and preaching in quilombo villages and mud huts and all of that type of stuff. Dane, here, here, here's what I notice about those quilombolas. No lie. They are riveted. When the gospel's being proclaimed and the gospel's being applied, one night I was preaching and the only way I knew it was happening because my wife was going, you know, I hate it when she does that. First thing I do is look at my fly. I think my fly's down or something. But on the back wall, look at here, one of those big old, uh, what do they call them, iguana things? So there was an iguana, came in through an open window, climbed up the back wall. I'm preaching. What would happen here and if iguana ran up here and came up the wall? We'd have to dismiss service, huh? I mean, we really would. But here's what those, those Brazilians did, son. They never even got, never even give any indication. I wouldn't have ever turned around and knew there was an iguana behind me if my wife hadn't been saying. <laughs> you know? And because she's my focus, I know when there's that look on her face. I know something's up. <laughs> That's a focus. And man, we just got ADD, do we not, spiritually? We're all over the place. And our biggest battle is staying focused and prioritizing the gospel. Check out number next. Look, notice what else he said. He said the gospel must have priority because there is no comparison. There really isn't. Is there anything in your world today that compares to the gospel of Jesus Christ? There's not. <laughs> not even a close second. He said there should be no hesitation. Pay, that word pay, pay. Don't have buyer's paralysis like your pastor does at Tractor Supply. But number next, he also says, and there is no exception. Somehow or another, get this, somehow or another, you tell me, am I the only one that does this or do you have this temptation, this mental volley that goes on in your head as well? Well, yeah, God, I know what the Word says, but my circumstance is different. Huh? Do you ever do that? Like, like, I'm the only one in the history of the world that's actually been through this set of circumstances, God, so I'm an exception to everything that the Word says. And friend, that's just not true. That's what the devil wants you to think. You're not an exception. I'm not an exception. Our situation is not an exception. Therefore, we have no exemption. There's no exemption. Notice where this comes from in this text. Notice what it is that... How am I doing on time? All right, here we go. Verse number 2. And here's his argument from the lesser to the greater. For if the word spoken through angels proved... Here's your word, underline, underline it. Unalterable. Unalterable. You know what that means? I mean, God didn't change it for you. He didn't say, Alyssa, this applies to everybody else, but your circumstance is so out of the box 
Your circumstance is so unusual, so unique, until this really doesn't apply to you, girl. Now that's what the devil wants us to think, but it's not. Now look here, what he's talking about is things like this. If the gospel says it in this life, and we are not embracing that and living in light of that, make no mistake about it, shipwreck is coming. You are adrift, and your boat is headed toward the rocky shoal. Avoid those consequences. Avoid those circumstances. Oh no, God, this applies to me. This where I'm not an exception to the case. I'm not exempt from this. If I don't do this, my life is going to end up in turmoil. I'm going to be a miserable, bitter person. No exception. And finally, he gives us the or here. There's no comparison, should be no hesitation. There is no exception. If we ignore all of those warning signs right there, or there will be great humiliation. We are headed for open and public disaster because we're drifting and we're passing all the warning signs that are saying, don't go up in there. You're going to get your boat stuck. Don't go. You're going to sink. You're going to lose your cargo. You're going to lose everything right here if you don't pay attention to these signs. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Back when Heather and I lived over on the East Coast, Northeast Florida, Mac, you're familiar with the area. We used to fish a lot St. John's River, St. Mary's River around in there. And there were some guys in my church that were hardcore fishermen. And only with those guys, we didn't, it wasn't about being a sportsman or anything else. If I could fish close enough to them to hook a fish in their live well and put it in mine, that was fair game. That's what we'd do. If they caught a fish, we just pull right up in there and start fishing in their hole. I mean, that's the way you did it with these guys. It was just, you know, one of them things. We just had a unique relationship, and it was all about who caught the most fish. It wasn't about how you played the game. It was about how, you, how many fish you caught. And, man, we would, when we were on the water, it was like a bass tournament. Folk just running everywhere. And one day, one of our old buddies got to going, and he thought the tide was a little higher than it actually was. And that sign that says, warning, shallow water, he said, no, I've fished this river all my life. The tide's high enough, I can do it. And Sonny had her full throttle, and he run it about 50 yards up into, the, into an oyster bed. And he was high and dry. Now get this. When you run a boat up into an oyster bed that far, you know what your options are? You got it, brother. Your options have just been taken off the table. You had options before you did that, but once you run it in there, you don't have no more options. You were at the mercy of God. And you're going to sit there until God raises the tide again and floats your boat off of there. So this old boy that run up in there, guess what the rest of us did? There were four or five of us out there. Son, we'd go by there and we would just laugh. We'd hold up a big old fish, say, look at this. And he was sitting up in there baking in the sun because he couldn't get out of the mud and out of the oyster beds. It was hilarious. He was publicly humiliated. That's exactly what this guy's talking about. Shipwreck. You run up in the oyster bed, no more options left. This thing's got to play out now just the way that God wants it. I can remember other times, listen, Heather and I'd go out 
March and April, that's when the whiting were running. And we'd anchor up in the mouth of St. Mary's River. And the tidal, the current in there so... so back in the old days, you know, you, you speed on to ran off, of, off your motor. Today it's all electronic and stuff. But I remember sitting dead still anchored. And my, my speedometer on my dashboard showing 12 miles an hour. Did you hear that? I'm sitting dead still. And the tide's so strong until my speedometer's registering I'm going 12 miles an hour. Now, this is exactly what this guy's talking about. Here's why it is. There's no such thing as, as, as standing still spiritually. Because the current of the world is coming against you for... Hey, did you know as a believer you are literally walking against the current? And if the current's coming at you at 12 miles an hour, guess what you got to be doing at least if you're going to make any progress? Man, y'all all over this thing, ain't you? you got to be doing at least 13 miles an hour or you're not making any progress. And so many folk today think, well, you know, I'm okay because I didn't grow much last year spiritually, but at least I didn't give up any ground. I'm in the same place. No, you're not. If you're not doing at least one mile an hour more than the current that's coming against you, you're going to be going backwards. And look, there's a rocky shoal behind you, and it's coming up fast. I'll never forget the story, Dr. John, you referenced it not long ago, of the guys who were exploring in the Arctic Circle. And they took a GPS reading. They were headed toward the North Pole, took a GPS reading. They walked in a blinding snowstorm for about five hours. They stopped, set up, took another GPS reading, and they couldn't believe it. They said, something's wrong with our equipment. Because the GPS reading was showing that they were farther south now than they were before they started walking five hours ago. And they couldn't figure it out. But what they had done, they had walked out on a huge sheet of ice. Acres. And that sheet of ice was floating south at a faster rate than they were walking north. And their GPS was saying, guys, y'all ain't making no problem. Y'all losing ground. And can I say that's exactly what we do so many times as believers? We're not making any progress because society, the world, is headed south more quickly than we're headed north. And we don't pick up the pace. We're going to be setting up on the oyster bed with no more options left on the table. Check out number next. I don't know if I got time to do this. I'm going to have to run through them real quick because here we go. Two simple points today. Number one, the gospel must have priority. And number two, the gospel should have priority. Because now he's going to follow it up in three and four telling us why the gospel should have priority. And number one, because of its origination. Look what he says in verse 3. How will we escape? You see that? He's not talking about hell. He's talking about the oyster bed. The rocky shoal that's going to break our ship apart and cause us to sink and lose life's precious cargo. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's greater. There's the, the greater. The lesser was the word spoken through angels. The greater is that which was first spoken through the Lord. So here we go. It's origination. That's why it deserves priority because, hey man, this originated with the Lord Himself. But number two, because of its confirmation. Look how it was confirmed. 
It was confirmed to us by those who heard it. Listen, those first believers heard the Word. They mingled it with faith and look what they did. I mean, literally the course of history has been changed by those folk. Don't tell me this is a fable. This is a wives' tale. Don't tell me this is not eternal, rock-solid, divine truth. It was confirmed by those folk who first heard it and put their lives on public display of just what God can do with one person who's totally sold out to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number next, because of its authentication. How was it authenticated? Well, look with me again. Here it was it originated with the Lord. It was confirmed by those who first heard it. Here we go, verse number 4. God also testifying, look here, with them. <laughs> with them. Isn't that cool? It's not God testifying for them. It's God testifying with them. As they walked this walk of faith that so pleased God till He poured out His blessings on them and authenticated by signs and wonders what it was that they were saying. Man, that's cool to me. Man, let's make room for God to get up in here with us, huh? Let's make room for God to get up in our life with us and authenticate what it is that we proclaim with our lips. Check out how He did it. Look, 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 at, look at what He says. God testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles. I call that with awesome experiences. With awesome experiences. I mean, man, there were things happening that were just absolutely mind-blowing. But number two, look what else he says. I think he talks about with occurrences that defy explanation. Again, look what they are. They're signs and wonders. That word wonder... That word wonder is really the basis of worship because it gets at the heart of this. Man, that blows my mind. How did that happen? And we're lost in wonder. Awestruck wonder. <laughs> because you can't explain this. There's only one explanation, Justin. God did it. That's the only logical explanation because there is no other way to explain it or interpret it. God did it. And man, I have to ask myself, Oh God! Do those types of things follow my life? And if not, why not? And maybe because I'm not prioritizing the gospel and paying much closer attention to it than anything else in my life. So God authenticated it with awesome experiences, with occurrences that defy explanation, and finally, with abilities beyond explanation. Look what he says. Look at that last clause. And by the way, Karen Newman gets the gold star today because I asked Jerry to study this passage and I was going to introduce him as the guest speaker. And he said he didn't have anything, but Karen had a lot that she'd like to say from this text. Here's one of the things that Karen saw. Good eye, Karen. Good eye. Trinitarian involvement in this. You see it? Not notice. It was spoken through the Lord, a reference to Jesus Christ. God, the Father, testifying with them. And then look at the last one and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. You know what he's talking about here? And man, this, this, this portion right here in the original language could go either way. So many of my scholarly friends look at these last verses and, and they, they fight over how it should be interpreted. And I always say, anytime 
An inspired writer gave us, left, left two grammatical approaches on the table. He did that purposefully saying, it's not either or, it's both and. And here's the both and. Look what he says. Uh, the New American Standard takes this as, as the Holy Spirit giving us gifts, spiritual gifts. That's right. But the other reading can also be by us receiving the gift of God living within us. That's right. But let's just go with the way the New American Standard does it. Here, look what he says. God testified by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Now, that His own will, who is that? Is that the will of the Spirit or the will of God the Father? And again, that's part of the question. But nonetheless, don't get bogged down. That doesn't make any difference because both of them are true. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, by golly, people who have been born again immediately receive within themselves the gift of the Holy Spirit. They receive the person, the third member of the Trinity living within them and He brings remarkable abilities to the table and I'm telling you, because of that, you can do things that are beyond your expectation. See, that's the supernatural part of Christianity. Hey, listen to me. The very fact that I'm standing up here before you today preaching, that's not me. You know where I'd be, Dr. John, if it was up to me and the Holy Spirit wasn't in me and He hadn't gifted me to preach the Word of God? Tell you where I'd be, I'd be a little recluse somewhere. If I was at church, I'd be as uninvolved as I could possibly be. I'd just be a bystander. I'd be a fly on the wall because I'm an introvert. My personality is to stay out of the way and let other folk do it. But son, listen, when God invaded my life, He came in with the full force of the Spirit of God, gave me abilities that I didn't even know I had, and He said, Son, I want you to preach the gospel. And by golly, ever since then, we've been doing our best to be faithful. Beyond expectation. And isn't that what this life in the gospel is all about? Ephesians 3.20, what's he say? Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you are able to ask, think, or expect. Exactly right. Hey guys, I look at this text and I have to repent. You know why? There's a large gap in what this writer says it ought to look like and what it does look like. But in Jesus' name, let's prioritize the gospel because when you prioritize the gospel, you know what you do? You pick up a little bit of speed walking north. You pick up a little speed when there's no comparison. You pick up a little bit of speed when there's no hesitation. You pick up a little bit of speed when you realize there's no exemption in this for me. I, this is binding upon me just as the law of gravity. And we pick up a little speed, and for long, even though the world's coming at us full, full force, 15 miles an hour, by golly, we got a supercharged rocket booster on us, and we're going faster than it's coming at us. Man, that's what I want my 2024 to look like, Jerry. I hope we all do. Let's prioritize it because He's worthy. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, thank you for, in your grace, speaking to us and just sometimes lifting up the hood and showing us why life is not working, why we're not experiencing fullness of life and abundant life and 
joy unspeakable and all of those things that the New Testament says is the birthright of those who've been born again. God, I pray today somehow or another you have used this text to give us a tune-up to get us back headed north with a little bit more speed than the world is coming at us. God, use Grace Church. Use these folk right here. May you testify with them of the authenticity of the gospel that we proclaim because you're worthy forever and ever of all glory, honor, and worship. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.